0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoffer, an aspiring church historian, and this is The Baptist Heritage, a podcast where we explore the origins of the Baptist denomination against broad ecumenical movement from the 16th century to present day. As we move chronologically from the late 1500s, we'll be highlighting important events and personalities in Baptist history. Episode 6, John Smith, the Say Baptist, Part 2. On the last episode, we discussed the young pupil of Francis Johnson, John Smith, who, like his tutor, had studied at Cambridge in the late sixteenth century. We also discussed how the university had become a centre for nonconformist thinking, a sort of breeding grounds for Puritan thought. Of course, some men were not content to simply purify the Anglican Church from its Catholic resemblance, but considered its entire constitution corrupt, and therefore false. By their conviction, they separated from the Church, and in doing so suffered greatly at the hands of religious and civil authorities. Like Francis Johnson, they were ejected from the University and driven into exile, if not execution. This is assuming that they were permitted to leave England at all. Recall from the previous episode the scene from William Bradford's journal, in which a Separatist congregation was betrayed by the ship captain who was to transport them to Holland but instead delivered them into the hands of the authorities. They were not welcome in their homeland, yet they were not permitted to leave. We also discuss King James' campaign to effect religious uniformity and its effect on the secret congregations of John Smith and John Robinson, who were eventually able to escape to Amsterdam in 1607 and 1608. In this episode, we will explore the theological progression of John Smith, what is meant by the term "Say baptist and why many consider him a Baptist pathfinder. In the excellent historical narrative, The Baptist Heritage, Leon Macbeth states, When Smith and Helwes led their little band to Amsterdam in 1607, they were not yet Baptists. Their motive for migration was to escape persecution. This is true. Up until this point, Smith and his congregation had followed in the footsteps of their spiritual ancestors, Johnson, Brown, Harrison, Barrow, and Greenwood, all folks we've covered in previous episodes. In fact, Smith and his congregation had bound themselves by covenant into an official church estate, and not coincidentally, the language of their covenant closely resembled that of his tutor's congregation already in Amsterdam, Francis Johnson's ancient church. Before their departure, Smith drew up a treatise entitled Principles and Inferences Concerning the Visible Church, in which he describes the rules for forming, ordering, and ruling a church. Again, in many respects, Smith's Principles and Inferences shows an affinity with Johnson's church structure, presenting the possibility that the two had been in contact before the arrival of the Gainsborough Congregation in Amsterdam. We have to remind ourselves how radical this action was at the time. To set up any kind of religious gathering outside of the governmental church structure was almost a death sentence. Not to mention, there was no handbook on how to do it. The separatists simply looked to the New Testament and the early church and tried to imitate their service, singing the Psalms, communion, prayer, reading the scriptures. When we think about the modern church plant, we should celebrate the relative ease and freedom that we have to set up and worship a church according to liberty of conscience. Months after arriving in Holland, John Smith developed sharp doctrinal differences with his old tutor. In 1608, he published a book entitled The Differences of the Churches of the Separation, in which he criticized the order of worship and method of church government of Francis Johnson. This quarrel with the ancient church who should have been their guiding brethren in a foreign land, was too much for John Robinson. Recall that his congregation had been united with Smiths in England, but had separated to maintain secrecy once the meetings had become too large. They too had traveled with Smith to Holland, but in 1609, Robinson and about 100 members, dissatisfied with Smith's differences of the churches, moved their group to the city of Leiden. Their story is an important one, for they are the church that became known as the Pilgrims. Among their members were William Brewster and William Bradford, who wrote first-hand accounts of the journey to the New World. However, we will return to their story after reviewing the Baptist developments with the Smith congregation. The earlier separatists have been pioneers by assigning a high degree of importance to the individual church and the principle of independence. Their break with religious conformity was also a break with civil conformity, for in those times the church and the state were inextricably linked. Queen Elizabeth and King James alike had introduced canon laws that required adherence to religious conformity, and the separatists were in violation of said laws simply by congregating outside of the authorized church. Thomas Cranmer's 39 Articles had more or less established the framework for religious practice since 1563 and continued well on after the English Reformation. One of these articles is particularly relevant to the discussion of Baptist origins, Article 27, Of Baptism. I will read the article in its entirety to provide some context regarding 16th century Anglican thought on the sacrament of baptism. Quote, Baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, whereby Christian men are discerned from others that not be Christianed, but it is also a sign of regeneration or new birth, whereby, as by an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. The promises of forgiveness of sin and of our adoption to be the sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed." And grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. The baptism of young children is to be retained in the Church, as most agreeable with the institution of Christ. End quote. The last line concerning the baptism of infants, also called pedo baptism, is particularly important to our discussion. Though the separatist predecessors of John Smith had considered Cranmer's Thirty Nine Articles man made rubbish, they did not abandon the practice of infant baptism. Furthermore, for Catholics and early Protestants alike, not baptizing infants was considered a criminal offense as it demonstrated a sort of spiritual cruelty in denying the child of participation in God's covenant. In their overthrow of Catholic sacramentalism, the magisterial reformers such as Luther and Calvin retained the paedobaptist practice. This has been considered by many a great irony of history, that the Reformers, wanting to rid the Catholic Church of practices ushered in by unregenerate persons, would continue to affirm Church membership by the baptismal rite of unconfessing infants. Calvin himself stated that, "...Baptism serves as our confession before men. It is the mark by which we publicly profess that we wish to be reckoned God's people." He repeatedly makes references to the faithful public exercise of conscience, individuals. Yet he defends baptizing infants, which, by its very nature, cannot invoke the conscience faithfulness of the individual. This problem is characteristic of the reformed paedobaptist position. Though we will say no more on the subject for now. Our goal is not to enter into the theological debate between paedobaptist and credobaptist but rather to follow the logical extension of these ideas as they contributed to Baptist origins. Before we continue with the narrative of the Smith Congregation in Amsterdam, something must be said of Anabaptism, a movement that occurred simultaneously with the Reformation, yet that is usually referred to as part of the Radical Reformation. The magisterial reformers such as Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli still supported a state church Protestantism and, as their historical title implies, recognized the authority of the magistrates in ecclesiastical affairs. What made the Radical Reformation radical was its advocacy of a free church system, rejecting the authority of magistrates in church affairs and instead appealing only to the authority of the New Testament. Incidentally, for the radical reformers, this consisted of renouncing their former baptism as infants and constituting a new church upon a rebaptism as confessing believers. This act is commonly called Believer's Baptism, or Credo-Baptism. Etymologically speaking, the term Anabaptist literally means to rebaptize. The Greek prefix anna simply meaning again or anew. The practice began with a group called the Swiss Brethren. Though they had been allied with the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, they criticized him of not taking his reforms far enough by maintaining the Mass and infant baptism. In 1525, Eighty-four years before John Smith's actions, they met in secret to baptize themselves, initiating the Church of the Swiss Brethren. The term Anabaptist, of course, was not their own, but a slanderous nickname used by their opponents. As such, it included not only the Swiss Brethren, but also a broad range of zealous spiritualists and libertines those that represented the fringe of the Radical Reformation. In 1534, in the German city of Münster, a group of these fanatics attempted to set up the kingdom of God by force. Before they were overthrown, many atrocities were committed in the name of religion. After their failed revolution, a great fear of subversive heresy caused the Anabaptists to be greatly persecuted by Protestants and Catholics alike. Historian Roger Olson puts it like this, The Anabaptists' separation from the state churches were viewed with suspicion by the magisterial Protestants and Roman Catholics, who believed that the church and the state must work hand in hand. The whole idea of freedom of conscience and dissent was viewed as a dangerous novelty that could only lead to anarchy. The biblical Anabaptists were guilty by association to the events at Münster. For these reasons, it is not difficult to see why the early separatists were accused of heresy and falsely called Anabaptists. If you recall in an earlier episode, the 141 canon laws passed by King James in 1604 called for the excommunication of those that made a covenant outside of the established church. Article 12 declares that they not be readmitted into the church until they, quote, Repent and publicly revoke their wicked and Anabaptistical errors. End quote. During this time, countless publications were produced, either accusing or distancing the separatists from the perceived sedition of the Anabaptists. Some of the titles of these publications are quote, A Brief Confession or Declaration of Faith Set Forth by Many of Us Who Are Falsely Called Anabaptists. End quote. Another title is, A Warning for England, Especially for London, in the Famous History of the Frantic Anabaptists. Or one of my favorite titles is, quote, The Dippers Dipped, or The Anabaptists Ducked and Plunged Over Head and Ears. End quote. Enough has been said for now about the nature of the Anabaptists. We will return to them in a later episode. Suffice to say that Holland had become a center of Anabaptist activity, and that the separatist congregations taking refuge there would undoubtedly be exposed to their influence. The degree to which their influence mingled with separatism to formulate Baptist origins is a point of contention among historians. This will become clear as we look at John Smith's Theological Progression. Up until this point, Smith and his company had followed in line with their separatist forefathers, albeit with some theological distinctions on matters of government and discipline. But sometime during 1608, he began to come to the same conclusion that the Anabaptists had come to, that infant baptism was false and that they must be rebaptized. He writes, quote, This therefore is the question. "...whether the baptism of infants is lawful, yes or no, and whether persons baptized as infants must not renounce that false baptism and assume the true baptism of Christ, which is to be administered upon persons confessing their faith and their sins." He goes on to answer his own question by saying, "...now concerning this point, we do profess... "...that it seems to us the most unreasonable heresy of all anti-Christianism. For considering what baptism is, an infant is no more capable of baptism than is any unreasonable or insensible creature." And so, one evening, the group gathered together, and Smith baptized himself, his co-leader Thomas Helwis, and the remainder of the congregation, each one making a public confession. Thus they formed the church anew, according to the pattern they believed was laid down in the New Testament. When historians refer to the formation of the First Baptist Church in Holland in 1609, it is to this event that they are referring, though it is not necessarily a Baptist prototype. Almost immediately the incident became known and attacked by separatists and Puritans alike. Henry Ainsworth, leader of the ancient church, stated, quote, Mr. Smith anabaptized himself and anabaptized others. End quote. The Puritan Richard Bernard, who once had a good relationship with Smith, said, quote, Upon so extraordinary an act, I will be somewhat exorbitant with myself to call him. Mr. John Smith, the Anabaptistical Saybaptist, he is Anabaptistical for rebaptization, and he is Saybaptist because he did baptize himself. But is his baptism true? The opponents of separatism capitalized on the moment to point out the logical inconsistency of those who broke with England yet accused Smith of going too far. The spiritual equivalent of having one's cake and eating it too. One Puritan declared, quote, Either you must go forward to Anabaptism or come back to us. End quote. This was Smith's own logic as well, for he had reached the conclusion that if the Anglican Church had a false constitution, then its mode of baptism must also be false. In his book, Character of the Beast, he writes, quote, Whosoever does separate from England as from a false church must separate from the baptism of England as from a false baptism. The baptism of England cannot be true and be retained, and the church of England false and be rejected. It is for this reason that later in life Francis Johnson went back on some of his former teachings and declared that the Anglican church was not false, just corrupt. So then, we can deduce that Smith's rejection of infant baptism was twofold. One, that it was not the biblical or the apostolic form, and two, that having come from a false church, the ordinance itself was also false. You may think that the subject matter is all a bit tedious. Believer's baptism seems reasonable enough to us today as beneficiaries of the privilege that was won at such a great cost by Smith and the Anabaptists. After all, consider the scene in Acts chapter 8, 26 through 40, when Philip, on the road to Gaza, encounters an Ethiopian eunuch and preaches the gospel to him. The eunuch then sees a body of water and says, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Subsequently, Philip baptizes him, but only after affirming, If you believe with all your heart, you may. This is but one of many verses that serve as a proof text for a baptism preceded by a conscience affirmation of faith on behalf of the convert. But the reality of medieval Christianity was that infant baptism was so deeply embedded in the tradition of the Catholic Church that even the magisterial reformers could not bring themselves to end the practice. They argued that just as circumcision of infants was an initiation rite of the Old Covenant, so too baptism ushered newborns into the New Covenant. Therefore, it was the believing parent's duty to baptize the baby. The extremity of believer's baptism was accentuated by two other factors. One, the relationship between citizenship and baptism that existed because of state-sponsored religion, and two, its perceived association with the violent and fanatical Anabaptists. But let's say no more about the paedobaptist, baptist baptist debate for the time being. Our goal is not to enter into the theological debate, but rather to provide the historical context that made the conditions right for such events to take place. In a future episode, we will exposit the biblical text to further understand the mode of believer's baptism. Many historians have conjectured the extent to which the Anabaptists residing in Amsterdam influenced John Smith's actions. The historian Walter Burgess states, "...it is not at all unlikely that Smith was influenced both by the Mennonites and by those of his own nation who had become Anabaptists in Holland before his arrival in that country." A theological cross-pollination was all the more likely considering in 1610 the group rented a bakehouse from Jan Munter, a Mennonite of the Dutch Waterlander Congregation. They lived, worshipped, and worked out of the bakehouse, which had been erected to serve biscuits to sailors of the Dutch East India Company. This intermingling of Dutch and English culture in the bakehouse led Smith to adopt Anabaptist tendencies that occasioned another split in his congregation this time with a teaching elder, Thomas Helwis. Sometime in 1610, Smith began to doubt the validity of his own baptism, thinking that the church and the ministry must come by succession, that is, by someone that already possessed it. He, along with 32 members of the church, requested admission into the Dutch Mennonite Waterlander Congregation, which was finally granted unto them in 1615, two years after Smith's death. This series of events was too much for Thomas Helwes, who was satisfied with his baptism and hesitant to adopt the theological positions of the Waterlanders. He and a small band broke communion with Smith in 1611 and issued a confession entitled, A Declaration of Faith of English People Remaining in Amsterdam and Holland. This declaration is generally considered the First Baptist Confession and identifies 27 articles distinguishing characteristics of Helwes's congregation from that of Smith and the Mennonites. Shortly afterwards, he also published An Advertisement or Admonition Unto the Congregations in the Low Countries a work that denounced the theological errors of the Dutch. In this book, Helwes accuses the Mennonites of seducing his former church, quote, and you have caused them that were more indifferently minded to double their doubtings and rather step backward than come forward, end quote. An advertisement is imbued with a strong sense of betrayal, both at the Mennonites and Smith, who, according to the author, had departed from biblical truth and left the small Helwes faction alone in a foreign land. One historian points out that the responsibility for carrying on the newly established Baptist church had suddenly fallen on Hellwiss's shoulders. Against this backdrop, Helwes regretted his decision to leave England in the face of persecution. Disheartened, he writes, Quote, have we not neglected ourselves, our wives, our children, and all that we had? Helwes had lost his family. His wife Joan seems to have remained in England during the criminal process of her arrest in 1608. He had also lost the lease on his home, Broxtow Hall. In a renewed spirit of conviction, he returned to England in 1611 to found the first Baptist church on English soil. But that's a story for another podcast. What are some takeaways from today's episode? Let's review. John Smith and John Robinson migrated from England to Amsterdam in 1607 and 1608 following a wave of separatist persecution initiated by King James and Richard Bancroft. Smith published a treaty entitled Principles and Inferences Concerning the Visible Church in which he describes the rules for forming and ordering his newly founded church. Smith quickly falls into controversy with his old tutor Francis Johnson and criticizes him in a book entitled The Differences of the Churches of the Separation. This quarrel leads John Robinson to break away from Smith, and to move to the city of Leiden. Remember, his congregation will further migrate to America as the pilgrims. Smith's church comes into close contact with the Dutch Mennonites via the bakehouse that they rent. The Magisterial Reformers believed in the use of force and state-sponsored Protestantism. The Radical Reformers believed in a free church system, and did not approve the magistrates being involved in church affairs. Smith publishes a book entitled Character of the Beast, in which he renounces infant baptism. He then baptizes himself and his congregation. Ironically, Smith renounces his own baptism and applies for membership with the Mennonites. His congregation is absorbed into theirs in 1615, two years after his death. Thomas Helwys breaks communion with Smith in 1611 and publishes a new confession, generally seen as the First Baptist Confession. Helwis and his group returned to England and found the First Baptist Church on English soil in 1611. I hope you're enjoying the Narrative of the Separatists especially now that we're starting to explore Baptist origins. I know it can be a lot of information to digest, so please remember that in the show notes, there is a link to a full transcript complete with footnotes and citations. There is a lot of additional information in the footnotes. It may be helpful to print it and reference it periodically. Also, my contact information is in the show notes if you'd like to get in touch with me. Thanks again to everyone who has supported the podcast so far. If you feel inclined, please leave a review as it helps others find the show. And as always, thank you for listening and peace be with you.